this is the final episode of this season of the podcast. Uh, I'll do some mushy, like, self-promotional stuff at the end of the episode, so you can zone out uh, then if you want to. But I was thinking about how to mark such an auspicious occasion, and I thought we could mine some past episodes for content. <laughs> uh, because I feel like I spend a lot of my time saying things like, I love this thing, but ignore that and we'll come back to it. And then I never do. <laughs> so we're going to do it. We're going to force me to acknowledge that sometimes I should pay attention to what I'm saying. If you listened to the first episode, you may recall me saying that there's like a 75% chance that I'm thinking about early 2000s MTV phenomenon jackass at any given moment. This, unfortunately, was not an exaggeration. <laughs> uh, I've been thinking about jackass since I was an awful, awful teenager, and I, no joke, uh, wanted to write my year 12 extension English 2 paper on it until I realized that I'm an extremely lazy person and I didn't want to do English Extension 2 and promptly quit to do a wanky final art project on Alice in Wonderland instead. I think about Jackass so often and I couldn't really tell you why. I, I mean, I'm lying a little bit. It's been like 20 years of near constant thought. Uh, I do have a vague idea, but mostly if anyone ever presses me on it, I end up like Barbara Krugering it up and just muttering, it's about the intricate rituals that allow you to touch the skin of other men. So today, <laughs> I'm going to force myself to elaborate on that stupid thought and actually write the thing, thereby laying to rest my dreams of a jackass-related thesis once and for all. I'm Alex. This is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition. And today, I'm thinking about Jackass. Pop culture boner. So I never had pay TV growing up, or like cable for my non-Australian listeners, which meant that I never really saw the actual TV show of Jackass, but I did see the movies just so many times. If I seem like an unlikely candidate, it's because I am. Not only is the show and movie directed at white men aged between 18 and 24, brackets I did not fit into then and do not fit into now. It's also so brainlessly violent, it ran completely opposite to anything else that I liked at the time. While I'd seen like a few minutes here and there of the first film, I actually didn't have any intention of ever seeing it all the way through. But the local cinema had limited options and the child that I looked after wanted to see a movie. So we saw Jackass number two. <laughs> Was it a questionable choice? Yes. Was I a deeply average nanny? Also, yes. <laughs> Even though I had to spend most of the film with my hand over a child's eyes, something about it really grabbed me. Like, I rented everything I could pretty soon after, and I watched it end-to-end -end multiple times. You know when you look back at yourself at various points in your life and you're like, why? I've been trying to do that with Jackass for years. Not just why I was so drawn to it, but why everyone else was too. 
<laughs> so essentially, I want to think about a couple of things when looking at Jackass. The first is its historical context. This shit doesn't just pop up out of nowhere. So why the year 2000? And why did the show and the subsequent films become such a global phenomenon? And why this particular group of men? Uh, what do their ways of being on screen and with each other mean? Because it feels significant. And secondly, I want to think a little bit about legacy. Because I think Jackass, for all of its many and varied faults, does have a weird one that it doesn't actually get a lot of credit for. All right, so let's get into it. Jackass premiered as a TV show on MTV in October of 2000. But conceptually, it was actually born a few years earlier when Johnny Knoxville was a semi-employed actor and journalist. His idea was to test self-defense options, like pepper spray and tasers, on himself and then report back on the experience. The concept also included testing a bulletproof vest by shooting himself point-blank in the stomach with a 38 caliber handgun. Which, perhaps unsurprisingly, a lot of editors weren't sold on. <laughs> Enter Jeff Tremaine, who is the editor of Big Brother, which is a now defunct skateboarding magazine. Big Brother was, like, pretty, I guess, controversial. It published articles on topics like how to use a Coke straw effectively or how to kill yourself step by step. Um, and it already employed a collection of future jackass weirdos, including Wee Man and Chris Pontius, who I think at that point had already actually appeared nude in the magazine. So its countercultural kind of anything-goes stance was really the perfect vehicle for Knoxville's idea. Tremaine insisted that Knoxville film it. You can still find that video on YouTube, and it's complete with Knoxville kind of pleasantly narrating his actions. Like, now we're going to take me out into the desert and shoot me. Uh, and the cameraman pleading with him to call the whole thing off. In fact, the cameraman is mid-beg when the gun goes off, and for a moment you really think Knoxville might die before he starts just, like, sprinting towards the camera because they've just fired a handgun. <laughs> It's a horrifying testament to Knoxville's natural showmanship that he somehow manages to spin out the tension of that moment even further by playing Russian roulette with himself. He could have just shot himself first try, but the gun clicks and spins four times before it finally goes off and startles everyone. Skate videos were kind of like a subcultural phenomenon at that point anyway, and the video was a cult hit with the kids who loved Big Brother. So the transition from random videotapes circulating at house parties to TV show was actually a pretty seamless one. The rest of the Jackass crew fell together pretty naturally from like skate rats and skate rat adjacent weirdos with higher than usual pain tolerances. When MTV picked them up, as the whole crew tells it, no one could really believe that a network was giving them money to put the stupid shit that they were doing on TV. But it was an overnight hit that catapulted them from sort of relative obscurity to the cover of Rolling Stone in under a year. Which begs the question, why the fuck? <laughs> if no one involved in the actual production can believe it, how are we, the public, 
meant to look back on the year 2000 and understand why a series of videos of dudes getting hit in the nuts was so wildly successful that it eventually ended up breaking box office records. I don't want to say that we were being primed by history to enjoy nut-whacking content, (laughs) but I am going to make that call. The end of the year 2000 was kind of a weird time in the U.S., They were about to hit an economic recession, which led to like a massive spike in unemployment and sort of continued driving the elbow into the shrinking American middle class. The 2000 election recount between Al Gore and George W. was sort of happening in November, uh, and it eventually fell in favor of George W. Bush uh, and kickstarted a series of uncomfortable political gaffes. I realized that everything's like kind of fucked now. So it's difficult to imagine that that time was somehow, uh, I don't know, equally as upsetting. But historically, this whole thing sort of feels like a downhill speed run into 9-11 at the end of 2001 and all of the hell that kind of came after that. So elements of counterculture tend to make a mainstream jump when the broader populace becomes frustrated by the same things that the underground is rebelling against. Jackass feels kind of historically perfect for this moment because it's smarter than it probably needs to be. It's taking swings at American class sensibilities and prudishness, even when they're taking swings at each other. It lodged out of that subcultural pocket in a haze of kind of like boredom and frustration and golf balls to the dick. And it latched on to the frustration and alienation that a lot of the population were sort of starting to feel more broadly. And that's prime nut-whacking territory. (laughs) But that historical context doesn't explain away all of Jackass or why it was so enduring. It ran for most of the decade. Actually, all the decade. It ran from 2000 to 2010. Anyway, there's actually a surprising amount of academic writing on Jackass. Or maybe it's unsurprising, uh, depending on your opinion of academia. Anyway, point is, there are a lot of opinions. Mostly, I think they're wrong. (laughs) Or at least, uh, I think they, they approach the show from the wrong angle. See, a lot of the writing on the phenomenon of Jackass is actually fixated on the show's gross-out factor. And that's pretty fair, I guess. The show is kind of unrelentingly gross. It is a parade of piss and shit and vomit interspersed with some liberal helpings of, like, blood and semen. Although the semen, usually not human, to be fair. I don't know if that makes it worse or better, though. Uh, I rewatched three of the movies recently and there were multiple points where I had to look away and one point where I actually felt my gag reflex kick in involuntarily. It was the sweatsuit cocktail, in case you're wondering, where Steve-O drinks a cup of Preston's sweat. Watching someone get covered in shit I'm fine with, apparently, but drinking cold sweat? Ugh, hard pass. Anyway, the graphic nature of the show combined with the fact that unlike a lot of shows which have sprung up in its wake, the pranks were largely kind of directed at the immediate group of cast members rather than an unsuspecting public, has meant that a lot of the focus in academic writing is actually about like white masculinity and what it means when white men start to publicly do this kind of gross shit to themselves. From which the prevailing conclusion seems to be uh, that on some level they're repositioning themselves as victims in order to reinforce false narratives of white men having their power stripped by feminists and people of colour, and some stuff about reinforcing, like, conservative class consciousness. Uh, 
I don't want to say it's a reach because I think there's a, probably a valid reading of the show as a whole that does incorporate a lot of elements of that argument, particularly when it comes to some of their forays into like edgier humor. Uh, you can't see me, I'm doing air quotes. But I do think that choosing to read the show and the subsequent movies only through that lens really ignores kind of the long arm of its success and the fact that that success was not predicated on only having a white male audience aged between 18 and 24. And I'm not just saying that because I loved it, although I did. Its reach was huge. In fact, I read a couple of oral histories from the show and the movies and multiple people involved in the production noted its success with young women particularly. Shanna Zablo, who was a producer on the show, says, uh, Girls think they're cute. There's a real sense of family between the guys. They really love each other, and I think that girls like that. I actually think that the real key to the initial and continued success of Jackass has a lot to do with the group dynamic. Like, I don't think I would want to be their friend necessarily, but they do feel like a group of friends, and that's important. I mentioned before that Knoxville has the knack of a natural showman. Uh, he also makes for a natural leader. It might be because by his own admission, he's more of a gravity and blunt force trauma kind of guy. So all of the most painful or dangerous stunts he throws himself into with this kind of gusto and like maniacal laughter. At one point during a stunt, uh, they're watching him kind of walk up to do the thing and someone says, look at Knoxville, he's dancing. He's about to die and he's dancing, which is both a gleeful celebration of future pain and a way of easing kind of everyone else's discomfort. Because leadership is also expressed by the amount of care that he puts into the group. There's a scene where they're electrocuting themselves and he's kind of soothingly stroking Aaron's hair and mumbling, you're all right, daddy's got you, you're all right. Even as the dial is kind of slowly being turned up. He has the air of someone who could only be leading a gang of lost boys. Like anything else would be a horrible misdirection of natural resources. They consistently push the envelope with each other as a group, but they do have enough of a sense of rhythm that they'll kind of pull back when asked. At one point, after repeatedly being stung in the face by a scorpion, Pontius, who is usually kind of a nude and chipper sort of character, pulls the plug and yells, Get me out! I'm sick of it! This fucking sucks! And he's sort of obviously very mad. Everyone lets him kind of stalk through, and he's shirtless and bleeding from a scorpion sting to the face. And after a minute, Bam Majera pipes in and says, what did you think was going to happen? And everyone, including Pontius, kind of dissolves into laughter. The point was to get stung in the face by a scorpion, and it was successful. A tantrum when you get the result you want kind of means nothing. This kind of genuine friendship that you can pick out amongst the gross-out humor and the near-death experiences seriously broadens the appeal of the show. Van Toffler, who's the president of MTV Networks, who was responsible for signing the show on, says, uh, Jackass is so much more than a succession of stunts. You couldn't explain the female appeal of Jackass if it were. It is about a bunch of guys getting off on each other. The fact that it's sort of singularly focused on inflicting stunts inward means they sort of become this like self-contained unit of chaos. And in doing so, it removes some of the threatening feeling for other groups, for example, like women or gay men who might want to be in on the joke, even when they're distant from it. 
Uh, leaning into this further, a lot of the gags are pretty excessively homoerotic. Um, one even involves the insertion of a toy car into Ryan Dunn's ass, uh, assisted by his childhood friend and co-star Bam, who is wearing rubber gloves. Rather than letting that like eroticism kind of sit as a punchline, Jackass happily plays up its own homoerotic elements by including gay icons like Rip Taylor and John Waters in the films who participate in gags and really kind of unabashedly fawn over everyone involved, Knoxville particularly. And they're allowed to do so without the kind of homophobic backlash that you would expect from a group of white men in the early 2000s. Waters uh, even later said, I'm a big fan of Johnny's and I think if I were to ever have a type, it would be the Jackass Boys. Now, John Waters' inclusion makes sense given his own sort of DIY history with smut peddling. He would obviously delight in a show where the entire point was to push the limits of good taste. But his participation also brings up another point that I think is an important factor in the success of Jackass, and that's that despite its status as low culture, it retains a very close proximity to the type of high culture, cool indie kid scene that adds this air of legitimacy to the whole thing. I don't know how many people have kind of just forgotten that that Spike Jones co-created the show and helped guide the films. That's uh, Spike Jones who directed Being John Malkovich and Her. Uh, At least one of those was definitely nominated for an Oscar. (laughs) Um, He got his start in early skate videos uh, before becoming one of the most in-demand music video directors of the 90s and eventually moving on to feature films. Jones acts as a strange bridge between the smut of the show and, like, a legitimate cinematic art form. Knoxville has since said, I mean, thank God for Spike, period. It was probably a little crazy to people, but with Spike Jones attached to it, it's like, these guys know something, but we didn't know that much. A start in subculture can grant a kind of cool status fairly instantly, But a lot of that would be pretty easily destroyed by the actual nature of Jackass the show. But for all of their raucous behaviour and denial, most of the show's key players have a certain level of consciousness of, like, the cult media that preceded them and the types of media that carry a legitimate cool factor. Knoxville has said that his initial testing of self-defence weapons was pulled together as a kind of fucked-up tribute to Hunter S. Thompson, And he's since gone on to participate in, like, evil Knievel documentaries. Pontius starred in Sofia Coppola's 2010 film Somewhere. Brad Pitt was in the movie, or the show, I can't remember which one, but by all accounts was extremely keen to be there, to the point where everyone was kind of, like, a little bit worried (laughs) that they might accidentally maim Brad Pitt. All the soundtracks for the show and the movies pull deep cuts from like punk and pop and metal and country for this weird mashup of like strange Americana. The crew knows what an actual legitimate cultural product is, and they're more than willing to fold that into the fabric of Jackass. This kind of unexpected cool factor combined with the easy camaraderie saves the show from a lot of its worst impulses. Like, when asked where they drew the line, uh, Knoxville said that he didn't like to be wet or cold, but Chris Pontius said, I don't want to do anything mean. It's just supposed to be mean to us. 
Which brings me to legacy. Jackass does have one, even if people don't want to admit it. Um, I think you can draw a pretty straight line between everything that was done on Jackass and the kinds of prank channels that pretty quickly found traction on YouTube after it launched. There's a lot of examples. Uh, Many of them are truly awful, but I think that David Dobrik and the Vlog Squad is maybe the best and most organic. It also comes the closest to emulating Jackass itself. Dobrik and co prank each other and vlog the experience. It's a little bit more blended than Jackass in that it shows a lot of their like normal life as well. It's also much cleaner. No one is firing bottle rockets out of their ass or playing in shit, but the blueprint is the same. It's a group of men pulling pranks to make each other laugh. One of the things a lot of these channels do lack is the friendship and the cool factor that kept a lot of Jackass's shine, though. I mean, my opinion on this is definitely (laughs) skewed because I'm old now, but a lot of the cool factor is kind of lost in digital translation for me. The internet and YouTube are kind of like a wild west. Like I, anyone can post anything. I've got a podcast and I'm just some guy who bought a microphone. In fact, I didn't even buy my microphone. Someone else bought it for me. (laughs) Anyway. It doesn't feel incredible that there's prank content available on a popular video platform, even if it does have a huge following and kind of millions of dollars in ad revenue associated with it. Jackass, on the other hand, conned MTV into giving them money to do what they were already doing. It went on television where they flouted critics um, and sort of had this battle with content ratings and were still successful. There's also a lot of, like, I think with the YouTube thing, a lot of weird money flexing that comes on those channels that never really happened in Jackass. Like, a guy making a million bucks is still getting covered in piss and kicked in the teeth, you know? But more importantly, a lot of the camaraderie seems to be absent on those YouTube channels. Where these new digital pranksters are kind of constantly breaking up with each other, think like Jake Paul, Team 10 sort of shit, The crew of Jackass still really like each other 20 years later. Steve-O kind of lovingly talks about how Knoxville helped him get sober. Knoxville is constantly commenting on Pontius and Bam's Instagrams to kind of coo over how cute their babies are. They've never really fallen out of step with each other. I think there's a tendency to ignore Jackass a little now because it feels like a fever dream. Like, for a hot second there, we all kind of collectively blacked out and woke up with, like, a black eye covered in vomit and agreed to never talk about it again. But I think we should all just be able to square up and admit 20 years later that watching a hot guy get hit in the nuts with a baseball by his close personal friend is actually great slapstick. We should all just get comfortable with that. Uh, so that was my long-awaited Jackass episode. Uh, well, long-awaited for me, anyway. It's all really just a long-winded way of saying that I think Knoxville's kind of hot. I'm with John Waters. I'd, I'd fuck Knoxville. <laughs> um, thank you for listening to 25 episodes uh, of this podcast. I really enjoyed making it. Thank you to Wesley for making me sound like something other than a woman just kind of shouting in the street, which is what I would be otherwise. And thank you to Wesley for writing the theme tune and adjusting the theme tune uh, as 
is necessary for the episode content. Um, I really appreciate it. We're going to be taking a small break into the new year to kind of play catch up. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. It's at PopCultureBona. We've also got a YouTube channel, if that's your bag. Um, you can follow us anywhere you like your podcasts. If you're on Apple, drop us a little rating and review. We'd sure appreciate it. Uh, anyway, I, I really hate doing self-promotion. This is making me really uncomfortable, so I'm out. But if you've got content that you want me to touch on in the next season, or you just really want to talk to me about the weird eroticism of Knoxville getting bitten on the nipple by an alligator, uh, talk to me about it next time you see me at the pub. Peace. <laughs>